If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Remember, this is not the NHS as we know it now, but what you saw was doctors setting up practice in a much more general way, not necessarily in the hospital setting. And you begin to see the, the development of, of the GP. That was Simon Bowman talking about the history of the Royal College of Physicians. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Founded by Henry VIII in 1518, the Royal College of Physicians is one of the world's oldest professional medical organisations. This year marks the college's 500th anniversary. And in today's podcast, we're going to explore its fascinating history with the RCP's Deputy Treasurer and Harveyan Librarian, Simon Bowman. Putting the questions to him was our Deputy Editor, Charlotte Hodgman. Um, the Royal College of Physicians is celebrating its 500th birthday this year, which is pretty incredible. Um, can you sort of tell me the, the beginnings of, 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 the, um, of the college? How did it come to exist and what was its purpose? The Royal College of Physicians was founded in 1518. So we are now celebrating our 500th anniversary. It was founded by Thomas Lineker, who was a physician at the time. And physicians look after people on the medical side as opposed to surgeons who do the operations and so on. In those days, it was a very different environment. There were very few physicians. They were learned, trained university graduates, most of whom, certainly in this country, had combined studies at Oxford or Cambridge and then had gone over to the continent to one of the ancient European universities. In Thomas Lineker's case, uh, who founded the college, it was the University 
to Padua. So he would have learnt a curriculum that itself was some 1,500 years old and based around the teachings of predominantly of a physician called Galen who lived around 100, 130 uh, or thereabouts uh, and was a prolific writer. His theories of medicine were based around four humours, so you could categorise disease into these categories. And of course, at that time, physicians would have looked at things like urine or bowel motions, etc. It was a very different practice of medicine. But they were very few in number, and so most medical care to the vast majority of the population was delivered by uh, priests, monks, people who perhaps had had very little or no training at all, the local wise woman at the bottom of the street. So it was a very complicated and rather disparate medical environment at the time. And I think what he felt was that to pull all this together into a more regulated profession required a college, a community, similar to the guilds that uh, were found in continental Europe from his experience in Padua and so on. So that was the underpinning of it. He was actually quite a prominent person at the time. He was a tutor to King Henry VIII's son, uh, uh, and he was a physician to the king. So he had access to some very important people like Cardinal Wolsey. And I don't know if you've watched programs like Wolf Hall, recently or the Tudors. That was set about 10 or so years after the, the college. But in essence, if you put yourself into the mindset of those TV programs, that was the basic environment that he was operating in. And he was able, with Wolsey and the support of others, they put forward this proposition to the king to found the college. And the king said yes. So there we go. So, um, once Henry VIII had had agreed for his college to be set up, um, what happened then? How did he actually go about the process? Did they have were they given a building or? So interestingly, Thomas Lineker used one of his rooms in his house as the first home of the college, uh, and I think they met there and no doubt discussed wise and important things. One of the uh, things perhaps to be aware of is that in trying to establish good standards of care, which in a way is underpinning what college does now, so it's all about educating doctors, promoting good quality care, and now perhaps much more focused on examinations. One of the things that was really important at that time was regulation. So they, the college, I have to say, spent its first 100, 200 years pursuing lots of dodgy characters, some of whom then became senior members of the college, uh, to make sure that they weren't up to no good. It was a somewhat uh, pro and con situation, I have to say. So they would pursue somebody, and if that individual told them to go away, they weren't interested, they then had to take them through the courts. And if you look at the many hundreds or even thousand 
cases that the college put through, some of them they were successful, but some of them they were not. So uh, perhaps that's one of the lessons about having rights to regulate, but without the power to really make things stick. And of course, in the 19th century, all the regulatory powers of the, the college were, went over to the General Medical Council. So it's fun to look back at those times, but uh, it's perhaps less relevant to what the college does now, which is much more around educating doctors, making sure that uh, standards are high and trying to persuade government to put in place things like minimal alcohol pricing, etc. A lot of work around public health in smoking, cessation, alcohol, etc. So some of those things you can look back and trace to the beginnings, but some of the work of the college, particularly around regulation, that uh, has, has now been left to others. And how did how did one become a physician or, or a member of the RCP? Um, you know, what what... What made these people stand out compared to the unlicensed physicians? So you would have had to have gone to university and studied natural philosophy. In this country, at, at that time, there were only Oxford or Cambridge. And then you would most likely, but not uh, absolutely, have gone off to one of the great ancient universities of Europe, like Bologna, Montpellier, Padua. And there they would have a further curriculum based on the teachings of Galen and others, after which you would then be a recognised physician. Some people would come back and get further qualifications from Oxford or Cambridge. Now, of course, uh, I didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. Most of the uh, physicians now will have gone to one of the medical, many medical schools that were founded in uh, Scotland and England, uh, uh, you know, predominantly in the, the 19th century. So... In those days, you would have had to have passed an examination in front of Thomas Lineker or, or one of his colleagues as a panel. It would have taken place in Latin or Greek. Um, so you had to be a, a classical scholar and uh, you would have either passed or, or not. Uh, um, of course, nowadays, it's very different. I have to say I did a little bit of Latin at school, but I never did Greek, so I wouldn't have stood a chance of getting uh, to be a fellow these days. And when the college was originally founded, the number of fellows was very tightly regulated. So in the initial charter had a very small number of fellows, and it gradually grew over the next centuries. But even then, less than 100. Uh, so now we've got something like 34,000 fellows and members so if there are only, say, 100 licensed um, physicians, obviously they couldn't be seeing everybody. They must seem to everybody's health care. What, what were the other options for people at the time, say, in the 16th or 17th centuries? So another very important group were the apothecaries. So a lot of medicine at that time would have been around producing medications, uh, and these would be prepared by, for example, the apothecaries. And in fact, the Royal College produced the first, if you like, book of medicines around the beginning of the, the 17th century called the Pharmacopoeia Londiniensis. So you could go and see an apothecary. And I have to say, I suspect that a lot of the boundaries between physicians and apothecaries were rather blurred at this time. So that would be one alternative. 
then, of course, remember there were the, the barber, barbers and the barber surgeons who were doing this, the, the operations, a fairly limited set. But if you needed your tooth pulled or something of that kind, we can think of the traditional law of tying it to a, a doorknob, etc. Uh, I think they, they were doing a, a lot more sophisticated things, but that would be another group that you could go and see. Then remember that certainly in the medieval period, the Middle Ages, the, the monks, the priests provided a lot of, the nuns provided a lot of medical care. So they were still active at that time. Uh, so that was another group. And as I say, I suspect a lot of people had very little or no medical care at all. Interestingly, if you look at um, lifespan in those days, if you got beyond childhood, people actually lived till their 60s, 70s. You know, we have a, an image of everybody dying dying young, but if, as long as you got through childhood or if you were a woman through childbirth, then people did live, you know, quite reasonable lifespans. Mm, they're a, a, a tough lot. <laughs> well, the, the other thing to remember is, of course, there would have been a lot more infection infectious disease but at the same time they were not eating sugar in the way that we are now so there wouldn't have been the same levels of obesity if you look at people's teeth in those days they're often pretty good better than ours so there are there are some health benefits or were some health benefits living at that time um and so when do we see that the sort of the gp figure um emerging and, and were they licensed by um by the rcp so one thing to be aware of is you've got your group of fellows, you've got restricted numbers. So if we look in the 17th and 18th centuries, you have a large group of very well qualified people who really should have been fellows, but there wasn't a slot for them to go into. And they were called the licentiates. And in fact, in the late 18th century, there was a big argument between the relatively small number of fellows and the much larger group of licentiates who felt they should have had a vote and be part of the, the college more, more properly, but who are, were being denied this, some of whom were very senior. The, the concept of the GP really evolved in the 19th century. So this was when medicine was you know, there were a larger number of doctors. You had the medical schools beginning to uh, produce larger numbers of, of medical graduates. And so, remember, this is not the NHS as we know it now, but what you saw was doctors setting up practice in a much more general way, not necessarily in the hospital setting. And you begin to see the the development of, of the GP. What other sort of key achievements um, have happened uh, in the college over the over the last sort of 500 years? So I've mentioned the pharmacopoeia. So that in a way was the first book of medicines. Now we have something called the British National Formulary, which effectively is the successor concept to that. Anatomy teaching was important. So if you look at the way that medicine has evolved, it followed this Galen style of dividing disease into what we would regard as a rather archaic concept now that bear little relationship to modern medicine. And it was in the late 17th century, 
18th century that what you might call the age of science or the age of enlightenment developed when the Royal Society uh, was created in the late 17th century. And everything that we now look at, so if you look at somebody like Sir Isaac Newton and the description of gravity, for example, that all happened in the late 17th century. You look at Robert Boyle and the development of what we would regard as modern chemistry. So that was the phase when medicine transformed from a philosophical approach based on teachings that had gone back over a thousand years into a much more experimental phase. And the person we would highlight, I guess, in this particularly would be William Harvey. He was a fellow of the college in the uh, early 17th century. And he described for the first time the circulation of the blood going around the body as a single circulatory process with the heart pumping it. And it feels a bit weird now, but before him, the view was that there were two circulations and blood sort of seeped around the body and nobody was quite sure what the heart did exactly. So actually, it was quite a leap for him to propose this radical theory that contradicted the orthodoxy of the time. And he published a book in 1828 called De Moto Cordis, which for the first time pulls together a lot of previous work by others. And he was the first person to actually suss it out properly. So if you like, he was, and he was very pro the college. He was a fellow. He was one of the senior officers. He turned down the office of president. He was a physician to Charles I. So he was both a, a key scientist, but also a, a, a royal um, a college man through and through. And uh, so we're very fond of him. We've got a lot of his uh, materials. He donated a lot of stuff to the college. He, in fact, I think funded some of the lectureships where they would have done some of these uh, anatomy demonstrations and so on. So he, he represented the medical bit of that age of science and age of enlightenment. So we would say that was a very important contribution of the college to development of science. He, the other part was many members of the college were very closely involved in the Royal Society, so who were in turn very involved in many of the major discoveries of the time around physics, chemistry, etc. cetera. Uh, there were some very key people. I'll mention um, Sir Hans Sloan uh, in the uh, 18th century. So he was a very interesting character because he was both president of the Royal College and president of the Royal Society. And he came from middle class, I would say, background in Ireland, became a very prominent physician in, in London, again, a royal physician, very large practice, very interested in what was going on in the world. So he communicated with a lot of people. He collected a very great number of things that he, on his death, he donated to the the, the British state that in turn was the part, the sort of core collection of the founding of the British Museum. Up until the 19th century, the, the college was predominantly a, well, was solely a male sphere. Um, what, when do we sort of start seeing women um, taking a, a role in, in college affairs? So you'll be aware of um, uh, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, 
as really being the pi- the female pioneer in medicine. And there was another lady called uh, Elizabeth Blackwell uh, around the same time. And they really pushed the boundaries to get, with great difficulty, one might say, to get uh, women recognized in medicine in general. The RCP only allowed women to take the college examination in 1909 and that was when women became started becoming members and licentiates and then in the about 20 years later you had the first female fellow Helen Mackay and since then of course things have changed very radically as women have become uh, have had certainly since the foundation of the NHS have had equal access to medical school. And we had our first, the college had its first female president, Dame Margaret Turner Warwick in 1989. But there were other senior female officers before then, such as Dame Janet Vaughan, Dame Sheila Sherlock. So things were well underway before then. And of course now medical schools are pretty even or even slightly female predominant. So as time goes by from now, I think we'll see complete equalization of, uh, of medicine uh, as, as is you know, right and proper. That was Simon Bowman. You can find out more about the college at rcplondon.ac.uk. And just before we go, Here's a reminder that tickets are still available for our day event on the Bayer Tapestry, which takes place in Oxford next month and features a number of experts delivering talks on the iconic piece of English and French history. Visit historyextra.com forward slash events for more details and to book tickets. OK, well, that's about all for today, but do listen in on Monday when we'll be taking a sideways look at the French Revolution. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.